0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Bronwyn Winter. I'm Deputy Director of the European Studies Program here at the University of Sydney. As you know, this university is built on the land of the Gadigal people, of the Eora Nation, and the university acknowledges the debt we hold to the Gadigal people. And we also acknowledge the debt we have towards Indigenous knowledges in this country and um, the Indigenous custodianship of this country. So we pay respect to those people and their elders, past and present. It is important that acknowledgement, even though we hear it a lot, it can sometimes be something we do in a ritual fashion and we empty it of its content, but I think the content is really important, particularly as we're talking about things in a transnational context and we also do have indigenous LGBTI people, some of whom were also 78ers, so you know, um, I think it's important that those acknowledgements get made. So um, as I said, I'm deputy director of the European Studies Programme, I used to be in French Studies I'm quite interdisciplinary in what I do. I'm also a lesbian feminist activist, which, you know, sort of may matter to a few of you. Um, and I'm quite interdisciplinary in what I do, even though my main home is probably political science. I'd also I'd like to acknowledge, in the presence of somebody else among us, we have... Um, we're going to talk... Maxime's going to talk a little bit in a moment about this transnational anthology that he and I and our other colleague, Rejan Senak have co-edited together... And um, we were introduced actually by a a colleague from Quebec, Manon Tremblay, who introduced us to each other and we got together and and did this book. And it's a transnational anthology which is, um, well, I might talk a little bit about the book before I introduce Maxime if that's all right. Is that all right? We have one of our authors with us um, tonight, Shauna Tang, who recently was appointed to the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies here at this university. It's all brand new. You started this year, didn't you? Yes. Uh, Shauna is co-author of one of the chapters. Let me just see if I can get the chapters up on the screen for you. There we are. Now, the writing's possibly a little bit small. I don't know if you can see it well, but there are nine chapters. And the point of doing this anthology... Um, was uh, to really have a comparative perspective, not on activist campaigns as much as on the, how the state handles same-sex marriage. Yeah? And the uh, we use a neo-institutional analysis, which Maxime will talk about in a little bit more detail in a moment, but it was important to us to make sure we covered as many regions of the world as we could. Um, Both countries where same-sex marriage is legal and countries where it is not. And of course the not is a big challenge in our region because Asia, you know, Taiwan perhaps imminently, but it's the only place in Asia that's likely to legalise same-sex marriage in the foreseeable future. But it was really important to me living here in Australia to make sure we had chapters on our region and I'm, I'm very pleased that Shauna is able to come tonight. I'm very pleased we have those two chapters here. Yeah? And all the authors of those chapters actually live and work in Australia. I've known baden Offord for a very long time and he brought in um, Shauna and Hendry on his chapter. So um, as you can see, we go around the world. We start with South America. We go to North America, Cross to the African continent, then um, to Europe and down to Australia and into Asia, and I sort of provide the bridge between Europe and our region, yes, in my chapter. It was also really important to us that each chapter is comparative, because often when you see these anthologies, they're a juxtaposition of a country case study here, a country case study there, but you don't really get that feel of a comparison happening among and between the chapters, so it was quite important for us also that each chapter be comparative as well as the book. So each chapter takes between two and four country case studies to analyze and looks at how the state has responded positively or negatively and particularly how the state has appropriated the question of same-sex marriage to defend its own interests as it sees them at the time. Now, without further ado, I would like to introduce Maxime to speak. Maxime is a guest here of the French Embassy. And uh, he was brought in in the context of the French Film Festival in particular, and our book, of course, but the French Film Festival, some of you may have already seen or be going to see. Um, BPM, as it's called in English, or 120, 120 BPM in French, which is about Act Up Paris, uh, and the story of Act Up Paris and their campaign. Um, I've seen it. It's quite a good film. It's worth a look. And it had six, was it six? César in France, which are the French Academy Awards. So it's, it got lots and lots of prizes. It sort of scooped up the main, the main prize tally. Um, Maxime is in the executive of the Higher Council for Equality, as it is called in France, which is about gender equality and, 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 and equality, you know, gender understood in broad terms in France. He's the vice chair of that council. He's also, I think, you're about to take off to New York, or you've just, no, he's about to take off to New York as, um, as part of the advisory committee to the European Commission on Gender Equality to the CSW, the, the, the um, Commission on the Status of Women in New York, which is attached to the set-up after the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which was signed in 1979. And we still have some work to do four decades later, don't we? So, so Maxime, I'm very honoured to have Maxime here among us. We've had a great time working on this book and he's going to tell you a little bit more about it.
0: Thank you, Bronwyn, for the introduction. Thank you all for, for being here. I'm, I'm so happy, actually, that uh, at least the first part of the journey that this book was like any book is and like especially uh, any... Oh, Sorry, I just have to interrupt, Maxime, because
1: I forgot to say something very important. You've noticed a camera at the back of the room. This is Sky News, and they are recording, yes? So anyone asking a question afterwards, just be aware that you may be recorded, and we will give you a mic so that you are part of the, 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 the uh, broadcast, yes? So if you don't want to be recorded, then whisper your question to somebody else and get them to ask it for you. Sorry, Maxime.
0: I'll use a different voice uh, to... Uh, so actually, yeah, Bronwyn told a little bit about this book, and I uh, would like uh, to add a few, a few things about uh, the genesis, because as I said, uh, any academic book is, a, is quite a long journey. Um, it takes a few years. Actually, our journey started back in uh, 2015 uh, in Uppsala, Sweden, a country usually ranked as uh, the top gender equality advocate in the world. Uh, This journey continued uh, in Poland back in 2016 in another uh, Congress of Political Science where we brought together the first pieces uh, through the first chapters uh, of uh, of this future book in a country uh, which is uh, usually ranked uh, the lowest in terms of uh, being uh, uh, supportive to gender equality, at least in the European Union. And uh, he actually, not ends up here, but uh, yeah, surely a first phase, a phase of uh, building a book together, ends up here in Australia uh, with this round of presentation. We did a, another one in Adelaide uh, uh, last week um, in a country that just granted or recently granted uh, marriage equality. So I think uh, this somehow um, illustrates the diversity of context we have. Um, quoting only the Western democracies with regard to institutionalizing same-sex marriage. Um, What about, a few words about the the research questions we had in mind when we started to to, to work on this book together. Uh, Brownlee told about the, vo- the willingness we had to cover as many regions of the world as possible. Um, but we also uh, felt that there was a need for such a book, uh, that it was a timely one. And because when we started, uh, as I said back in 2015, only three years ago, uh, about 15 countries had granted marriage equality. And uh, when this book was published uh, in, uh, at the end of last year, in December, Uh, 22 had granted marriage equality and we have about 25 uh, now, uh, uh, early 2018. So we had to rush a little bit to catch up on things because there were those waves of institutionalization of same-sex marriage going on across the globe. And we wanted, that was the first research question, we wanted to make sense of this timing. Why suddenly, uh, uh, since the first country, the Netherlands back in 2000, Uh, uh, more and more countries were uh, granting marriage equality. Um, At the same time, uh, we observed uh, that there were simultaneously some sort of a backlash going on, as it is often the case with gender rights. Uh, A backlash that saw some countries, um, especially uh, in Europe, starting legislating uh, about um, heterosexual marriage, about preventing any step uh, to be taken towards marriage equality, and that 's why also something interesting to uh, to, uh, to investigate um, and even we could say we could see uh, that uh, this issue of marriage equality or of making sure prevent it, uh, even on the constitutional order, uh, was starting to uh, become some sort of a totemistic issue for um, extremist conservative movement across the globe. And that was also something to be investigated. But perhaps the first research question we had in mind uh, was to make sense of the huge diversity of countries reflected among those having granted gender uh, marriage equality so far. Because those countries uh, do not look like each other, definitely. There is no common, immediately uh, strikingly um, uh, common pattern to be noticed among them. Uh, How is it possible that marriage equality was granted through uh, a referendum in the very Catholic Ireland, for instance? Uh, meanwhile, uh, it was uh, passed through a, a parliamentary vote in a country like uh, Argentina, where women have no uh, free choice to abort. Or in Malta, a country where uh, they, uh, women can't abort either, but where neither uh, uh, heterosexual or, uh, hom- or homosexual uh, uh, pairs can actually divorce. So a huge diversity, um, a variety of paths uh, towards this institutionalization, and that was actually what triggered our, our interest. So to um, approach this diversity of context, to try to make a little bit sense of it, um, and possibly also to foresee potential evolutions be- beyond the scope and the timeline of this book, Uh, as for Australia, for instance. Um, We adopted, we kind of changed a little bit the lens, which is usually the one uh, used to um, address um, LGBT issues and social movements uh, towards gaining new gender rights in general. Um, Those usual approaches uh, stem um, in like, for the most part, from the social movement literature, which is logical. So their focus is on how people uh, bring their claims uh, onto the agenda. Uh, How do they gather uh, uh, around certain uh, movements? Uh, How do they advocate uh, their rights uh, and uh, the type of uh, pressure they put on the political level? And often the story which is being told through the social movement literature, which is so crucial for understanding LGBTQ uh, movement across the globe, uh, the story which is being told uh, kind of ends up when those claims are upheld by the political level, uh, by policymakers, uh, by institutions. Um, And there is uh, less focus on what happened next. In this case, we wanted actually to uh, investigate how um, the state react through all its institutions, formal or less formal, uh, through all its decision-making processes uh, and uh, law-making processes to the claim of marriage equality. So we wanted to, talk, to tell a slightly different story. And we were interested uh, in this relationship between uh, uh, these social movement claims And uh, the reaction of the state, precisely because of this huge diversity of legal and institutional context in which uh, marriage equality actually happened, was made possible, and also of uh, this context where uh, the legislators decided to uh, act uh, in order to prevent such um, uh, a step to be taken in the nearest future. So we adopted, uh, as Bronwyn said, an institutionalist uh, um, approach. Uh, I won't tell much about that because I'm not sure it's what is the most interesting. But let's say that uh, in this new institutionalist approach are uh, at least three level uh, that we uh, we took into account. First, it's the respective positioning of political agents um, vis-a-vis uh, those uh, those claims. Second, These are the legal and institutional pathways of each context through which specific political and institutional arrangements can or cannot be found to institutionalize same sex marriage. And uh, and perhaps the most important and the most innovative uh, for our book, uh, those are the discursive framing uh, the discursive framing or discursive frames is all those claims are uh, actually about by the political level, put in words, in political terms, that can actually uh, be used uh, in usual party politics struggle, for instance. Um, so we ended up with those nine comparative uh, chapters. Chapters which have indeed a regional focus, but not only because you will see also uh, chapters that compare countries sharing um, certain amount of similarities like uh, Westminster-style democracies, for instance, parliamentary democracies, um, or post-communist states, as for the chapter I did uh, author myself. Um, and uh, we uh, indeed try to, to make sense of all uh, of all these aspects. And where what were actually the lessons uh, that we learned uh, during this book? There are a few lessons we learned. Um, the first one is that taken in isolation from each other, known of uh, the typical variable used in political science uh, to distinguish between uh, political. St- Systems or regimes uh, are predictive of this particular institutional outcome or legal outcome, which is in the legalization of same sex marriage. Uh, neither the form of the state, federal versus unitary, uh, nor the parliamentary versus presidential uh, cleavage, uh, or the strongly secular, the fact that those claims are brought forward in uh, secular. Uh, democracies or in democracies where um, uh, religion still uh, plays uh, an important role in the public sphere, uh, in particular through the role of the Catholic churches. Um, Or the fact to have established democracies as in Western Europe or uh, uh, here in Australia uh, versus post-authoritarian states like Post-socialist, post-communist uh, uh, European countries, uh, or uh, Spain, Spain, for instance. No, the fact to have advanced gender equality policy is predictive. As I said, Malta, uh, uh, for instance, or Ireland, are countries which granted marriage equality, and they are definitely not amongst the top gender equality advocates in the world through uh, the rest of their policies. So. It is happening that uh, the political, uh, there are political windows of opportunity opened that uh, end up with just, such a result. Um, actually, and that the second lessons, uh, the second lesson we've learned, um, there are definitely idiosyncratic character to each context and to each window of opportunity for putting the issue on the agenda. And advancing gender rights, and especially uh, same-sex marriage, um, and uh, that there is also very um, important feature, which are the discursive frame and how they interact with legal and institutional uh, context and pathways towards uh, this uh, result. So I will give a few examples a few uh, a few of this. Uh, Indiosyncratic character and interaction between different sorts of variables, For instance, through the French case, uh, which is definitely not the one I know the best, actually, although I'm French. Uh, Of course, I followed all these debates, but this chapter was authored by uh, the third co-editor of this book, the only one who is not on the stage today, Réjeanne Sénac. She compared French with Spain. Why why was that meaningful in this case? And actually, in the discussion, we can expand those examples to other chapters. Uh, Why was was that meaningful? To compare French, uh, a secular republic uh, establishing the French Revolution, um, with Spain, a constitutional monarchy uh, that uh, uh, went out from a notorious state only in the mid-1970s. And had even eventually a, pu- a, a putsch attempt uh, in the early 1980s, so not so long time ago. Well, precisely, uh, it is a result of this of those uh, uh features because Spain granted marriage equality back in 2005, and through a relatively fast track. Uh, this was pushed forward by a socialist government. Um, Eventually, there was, uh, uh, from when the popular party's right-wing party took back uh, power uh, in 2011, it pushed uh, uh, um, an appeal before the Constitutional Court to repeal marriage equality that was already enacted, granted, and implemented. This this attempt failed, and actually, it was a false attempt. It was more like the result of internal tricky party politics within the conservative camp the conservative side of the political spectrum. And in France, uh, marriage equality was granted only at the end of 2013, at the end of a two-decade-long uh, debate that started with uh, the debate over registered partnership long before, uh, in the, by the mid of the 1990s. And France was supposed to be a relatively uh, like, um, supportive context or favorable context for institutionalizing same-sex marriage. You know, we have this motto on the front uh, of uh, each building uh, in my country, uh, uh, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, and that does not seem to prevent uh, the full equality of each citizen before the law, irrespectively of it, of his or her uh, sexual orientation uh, or gender identity, but it's not what happened. And uh, not only it was a longer process, uh, a much longer track of institutionalization in France, but we had the most massive protest organized ever, apart from uh, those protests after uh, the bombing and uh, uh, the the killings in Paris uh, in uh, 2015. If I take those uh, specific protests, like moment of uh, massive national unity, Taking this apart, the protest against marriage equality uh, law uh, in 2012 and 13 was the most massive we had since the early 1980s, with more than two million people taking the streets of Paris to oppose uh, uh, this step uh, towards marriage equality. So this was not foreseen by anybody. It was quite surprising. And we have seen a sort of uh, unity of different sort of conservative voices raised uh, against marriage equality, um, adopting, which was also interesting, uh, some um, techniques of activism uh, that were clearly borrowed from uh, supporters to LGBT rights in previous fights and uh, struggles, political struggles. So that's just some, something uh, extremely uh, uh, surprising for, for, for observers of the French society. And meanwhile, in, in Spain, uh, LGBT rights have become some sort of a trademark of the Spanish democracy. And uh, um, they have been uh, institutionalized uh, through using a discursive framing which equals um, the progress made on gender rights, and especially on LGBT rights, with democratization, with the fact to move towards a modern uh, democratic system. While in France, the framing of the supporter uh, of, uh, of marriage equality was the following. It was uh, a story of continuity. Uh, from uh, the foundation of the French Republic during the revolution towards the full secularization of society on the one hand and toward the full equality of all citizens before law, uh, the law on the other hand, and those two narratives uh, were brought together as you know a narrative of continuity, a discursive frame of continuity. Uh, which actually was kind of conflating with the reality, which was those massive protests in the street at the time of passing uh, this law. So what was interesting in France is we had actually two conservative framing: one very conservative, opposing marriage equality, and another conservative one, supporting it, in the name of this continuity and of the equality of all. But no word about non-discrimination, about uh, 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 progressive a progressive republic about uh, uh, inclusiveness uh, under the republic and so on and so on. So those were like uh, interesting um, interesting cases. Um, I will end up here for, as for my presentation because I want uh, to leave uh, time for, more time for discussion and I think we can bring forward a few a few more revealing uh, cases. But I would like to uh, highlight and to have emphasize something uh, which is that over the past uh, two decades, this question, uh, the fact to, uh, to grant uh, marriage equality, has become, as I said in introduction, a totemistic issue for uh, many conservative voices across the globe. And uh, the fact that in Europe, for instance, a few uh, post-socialist country countries have decided to legislate, to make uh, uh, um, uh, marriage, a fundamentally heterosexual uh, institution, when it was not so clear in their previous legal orders, uh, is revealing uh, of that trend. Um, because this step has been taken not in isolation, but as part of a broader conservative shift, supporting the fact that being European does not equal supporting gender rights, that being European can equal uh, supporting traditional values, uh, uh, supporting the role of uh, the root of uh, the Christian roots of uh, European societies, uh, and that there is some kind of importing um, a a a cultural fight, cultural struggle around gender rights uh, uh, from the East, notably from Russia, where you may know that in Russia there is this concept, the vision of uh, uh, Europe as home of uh, gay rights uh, in a very negative uh, framing, of course, and as something that definitely distinguishes uh, 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 Western democracies from Uh, uh, illiberal democracies as uh, uh, Vladimir Putin or Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey or within the European Union, Viktor Orban in Hungary or Lech Kaczynski in Poland uh, want to actually frame uh, Europe. So this has become something of uh, tremendous importance not only in Europe as we will uh, further see in the discussion and uh, and, uh, the Long track, long path that has led also in Australia to institutionalizing same-sex marriage in a context that was supposedly relatively supportive also shows how, uh, how much those conservative voices have there found um, a useful electoral, political, um, and uh, ethical uh, uh, place to, uh, to fight. Uh, in within national context. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Maxine. We we originally called this anthology between globalisation and path dependency and Palgrave in its great wisdom decided it didn't like that. But it's sort of um, quite indicative of some of the things that Maxine's been talking about, that those two forces are at work. We have path dependency being the sorts of pathways that get set up by a country's history, the way its institutions have developed, the way its politics have developed, and so on, yeah? Globalisation being globalised discourses either for or against gay rights, yeah? And I think the transnational element is really, really important to consider. It was important in Ireland, where you had U.S. support for gay marriage among progressive Catholics, you also had significant opposition and even more so among the Protestants in the US, yes? And you actually had some money being funneled across the Atlantic to the No campaign. We know that US evangelists have been very active in places like Uganda and in Taiwan, so this West versus the rest division that sometimes gets set up when we talk about gay rights is a false dichotomy in many ways, because we actually have Western money fueling anti-gay marriage campaigns. The Thai, cons- uh, not Thai, the Taiwanese conservative Christians who were getting out opposing gay marriage, were also um, had U.S. links. Yes. So hegemony may have its uses sometimes, in that it's inspirational or we can get aid or whatever. Um, The globalisation of this whole LGBTIQA, whatever letter you wish to add to the alphabet type of discourse, also is very much uh, a North American and particularly US type of framing, yeah? And I think we need to remember that when we're talking about gender identity in our region because we have gender identities that are traditionally part of society, like bakla in the Philippines, Ladyboys in Thailand, Hijras in India, where, you know, those sorts of... And travestidos even in Mexico, where these sorts of, you know, pushing people into these sort of LGBT frames aren't necessarily um, what is part of the culture in um, other countries. So we have these globalised identities that get generalised, and that also then it prompts this sort of pushback. So these Eastern European values or these Muslim values or these Asian values, which get talked quite about quite a lot in the in the Chinese chapter. It's also important to remember that, you know, we, we, we contrary to the sort of positivist take on things, progress is not linear as we know very well in Australia, because we had the Marriage Amendment Act of 2004, yeah? Um, Australia was the first country in the world to um, uh, uh, recognise same-sex partner immigration. Yes, so very progressive in that sense. It's one of the first countries in the world to grant women equal pay legally, although, you know, the application leaves a few things to be desired. Still, we know that. Feminized professions tend to be lower paid. You know, one of the the second country in the world and the first state in the world to give women the vote and so on. So we sort of have this, you know, idea of Australia as terribly progressive. And then comes along, along comes John Howard to take us screaming back into the 50s. And I found it quite interesting that in Australia the same-sex marriage campaign happened because, almost because John Howard said we couldn't and suddenly everybody wanted to, yes? Because somebody said no. We have seen in Indonesia among our closest, one of our closest neighbors, our closest neighbor, and the largest Muslim country in the world, uh, and has been considered one of the most liberal countries in the Muslim world. And we've seen the terrible, terrible um, reactionary forces that are at work there at the moment, which are really, really very disturbing and very bad news for gay rights, as um, Shauna Baden and Henry explain in their chapter. Uh, we also know that in Bermuda, um, just this month, uh, we had a, a political decision to disallow same-sex marriage, Bermuda being a dependency of the UK, which has legalized same-sex marriage because of the particular legal status of Bermuda, it was able to put its veto on that, yes? Yeah? So same-sex marriage has been re-outlawed for the first time in the world now, yeah? Um, so. When we think in these sort of terms of a linear progress or the West leading the, you know, leading the way for the rest of the world and so on, I think we need to problematize that a little bit. What is also striking for me is the way social movements has used institutional structures and specific local path dependencies to, um, to create a campaign We have dissident Catholic priests in Ireland who supported gay marriage. In the UK, Peter Tatchell, if you sort of read read what he writes, you know, you'd always think he claims single-handed responsibility for um, helping the Conservative Party come round in the UK. But what Tatchell did do, and other people in the marriage equality movement in the UK, was convince the Conservatives that marriage was a conservative value, which personally, I think it is. Um, But it actually got the Conservatives on board. And David Cameron famously said, I support gay marriage not in spite of being a Conservative, but because I'm a Conservative. And Malcolm Turnbull very recently channeled David Cameron in saying the same thing, yes. Um, So social movements, you can see legal incrementalism has happened in a lot of places. People work through court decisions. That's happened in the US very famously. It's also happened in places like Brazil. Um, so, So we see this use by activist movements getting to know the system they're working in and using that system almost against itself in a way, yeah? Because we work in this system, we don't work in another one. In Australia it became a political football and that got used to advantage also by marriage equality movements. And, of course, it also gets used to advantage by the opponents of same-sex marriage. And and as Maxime pointed out, just because you've got gender equality formally, if not in practice, doesn't mean you're going to get same-sex marriage and vice versa. Achindina Island both legalise same-sex marriage. Women can't get an abortion. I recently saw at the um, Queer Screen Film Festival for Mardi Gras a documentary about the Irish campaign on the 34th amendment, which, um, and there was a referendum in Ireland, unlike here, as people were calling for. We had this silly postal ballot, but you know, that's another story. But it, it was a referendum in Ireland because marriage is encoded in the constitution in Ireland, and the 34th amendment to that constitution says it has to be between a marriage and, uh, man and a woman. So that amendment had to be repealed by a referendum, which is why in Ireland it's the only place in the world we had a referendum. Because it's the only place in the world so far. Um, where this debate's happened or where the the votes happened, where marriage has been formally encoded in the Constitution. It's a matter of national law in Australia, it's a matter of state or provincial law in Canada and the US, in in Mexico as well. Mexico also has had these patchy sort of incremental state advances um, towards a national decision. So activists have used these strategies to get a toe in, yes? Taiwan, we also have a very interesting case going on there, and a lot of people's eyes are on Taiwan, because it would be the first Asian country. There has been a, a constitutional um, court, I think it's a constitutional court decision, um, saying, yes, 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 you know, it's not anti-constitutional to legalize same-sex marriage. Now we're going for the parliamentary debate and vote, yes, which is going to happen sometime Um, We have other backtracking again in Eastern Europe, which is getting a really bad name for itself. Romania um, is looking to have a referendum to outlaw same-sex marriage sometime this year. So these things, these battles are not linear. But getting back to marriage as a conservative, and I'll just do just a a footnote on Ireland. If you are interested in what's happening in Ireland, there's a very big campaign upon the eighth amendment. There's been a repeal, the eighth campaign, the eighth amendment outlaws abortion. There's a referendum they finally got, and the same-sex marriage referendum, interestingly, I think, has given some impetus to the Repeal the Eighth campaign, and a lot of the people are involved in, a lot of the people who have been involved in Repeal the Eighth have also been involved in the, the Repeal the 34th for gay marriage. The gay marriage referendum has helped reopen the conversation uh, about, about, um about abortion in Ireland and there's a big referendum coming up and everyone in Ireland is saying it's going to be a much, much harder fight than gay marriage was. So do think of your Irish sisters when um, you're thinking of who to support next. Ah, yes, I did want to say, before I move to the commercial side of things, because I think it's something we haven't talked about and we need to talk about it. The the idea of this being a totemistic issue for the right, and that works in strange ways. It's vicious and violent opposition. We saw it in France, we saw it here, we saw people here questioning our right to even exist as homosexuals, very, very nasty stuff. Similarly, very, very nasty stuff in France and a whole bunch of other places in the world. The current pope, who's supposedly so progressive on gay rights, ferociously opposed gay marriage when he was still um, archbishop in Argentina. But the right, the European and Western right, are also using um, gay rights issues in homo nationalistic ways. I'm using homo nationalism, It's a term coined by Jasbir Puar. I have some problems with some of her argument, but her argument is basically that the West uses gay rights as a way of giving itself street cred and sort of doing a Western-the-rest type of scenario. Aren't we great? We give people rights. These nasty Muslims don't. That's basically the script, yeah? In Sweden, a party... Um, a misnomer of a party called the Sweden Democrats. Isn't it interesting that these extreme right parties often have names like Democrat or Socialist? The Sweden Democrats, which is an extreme right party in Sweden, which in 2015 had become the most popular party in the country, organised a gay rights march near a Muslim neighbourhood in, I think, Stockholm and the National Gay Organization came out um, denouncing that very, very quickly. But that sort of thing gets played on the, the number two, well really he no longer is the number two, but a recent number two in the National Front, Front is a very out gay man and so on, French National Front being the, the most um, mainstreamed extreme right party in Europe. So the right uses these things in different ways. There's also when we're talking about the West and the rest, we definitely have these anti-Western type of discourses. We have it in the, in the case on South Africa and Malawi. And South Africa is really sort of a, an odd one out in the African continent um, for very specific historical reasons that we know. But Malawi, and, and even in South Africa, we still have corrective rapes of lesbians. So it's not all rosy, yeah? Um, in Malawi, there's this whole African values discourse in East Asia we have these Asian values, we have these Muslim values coming back in, um, in, 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 in Indonesia. So that sort of Western the rest polarization is, is you know, is, is definitely happening. But before I open it up to your comments and questions, I did want to talk a little about the marriage as a conservative institution, yes, um, in my own chapter. And I think a little bit in the conclusion to the book, I do reflect a little bit on why gay men and lesbians are wanting to jump on a boat that heterosexuals are leaving in droves. In the Western world, and in other parts of the world too, heterosexual marriage is in decline and has been for some time. And I was ecstatic to see, it was on the weekly with Charlie Pickering last year, a gay lesbian comedian. Called D. Somebody I've forgotten her name. Isn't that terrible? But she was saying to Charlie Pickering, yes, that she got gay married in 2005 and got gay divorced in 2006, which I thought that was very cute. Um, But the, of course, couldn't in Malta. But (laughs) but uh, it is a conservative institution, so the question is rather begged of why, you know. And I know all I know all the reasons. I know all the reasons activists want this, Um, but. One also is tempted to think we can do better. I'm also interested in why states are interested now in whether they're conservative, whether they see themselves as conservative like Turnbull or Cameron or progressive like the Socialist Party in France and so on, or Kirchner in Argentina for that matter, why they are now appropriating this gay marriage issue. Well, it's a cost-free way of making themselves look good, but it's also a way of shoring up the institution. It's also happening at a time where states are moving towards privatization of welfare and re of welfare. Yeah, that's happening to us in Australia. It's happening, um, I just was reading really recently about how the money, the money that's going to be taken out of aged care in this country, and we've just had the 78ers celebration. Well, the 78ers are getting on a bit, yeah? And so aged care is something a lot of 78ers and others in this room are also concerned about, particularly for for LGBTI people. Also, in the United States, the huge campaign against Proposition 8 in California and the huge campaign for gay marriage in the States meant that energy and money was being directed away for such things as health, homelessness... Um, and and a few other things that that gay men and lesbians were suffering from. During the time of that campaign, millions of dollars were taken away from health funding to um, address HIV-AIDS in the US. So when we're looking at gay marriage and The sense of achievement and relief that people have in Australia, and I perfectly understand that, we also need to think of how the institutionalisation or the state rejection of gay marriage, because we do have states in this anthology, quite a number of them that did formally reject gay marriage, we need to think about what's hiding behind this and what other agendas are going to come along to trap us when we're talking about this. And if you want to know more about that, I'll just do a little plug for my next book. I'm actually doing a, a book called... Uh, it's going to be published with Routledge, but unfortunately not for a few years yet. I'm still writing it, called um, the, Political Ocon- the Political Economy of Same-Sex Marriage, A Feminist Critique. And just to finish off on that note, I, in, Buenos Aires, in Buenos Aires particularly, but in all over Argentina when the gay marriage was legalized in 2010, suddenly we had gay wedding tourism. We had new businesses. We had existing wedding businesses. Buenos Aires announced itself as the gay wedding destination in the Americas, yes? Particularly the South America, but even even North, you know? Trying to steal some business from places like Montreal and Vancouver, no doubt. The day the postal vote was announced here, Broome was advertising itself as a gay wedding destination and we've had the spiel about Tasmanian gay wedding tourism since. Interesting to know what the liberals who just won that election are going to do with that. So there are other agendas I think that we need to be cognizant of when we're talking about gay marriage. What's in it for the states and what's in it for neoliberal agendas as well? I'm going to stop there. Thank you for your attention, and I'll now open it up for questions.
2: Thank you. Um, You mentioned before about Taiwan, so I'm just wondering, could you hypothesise that if Taiwan did legalise same-sex marriage, what do you think that might do for Asia?
1: Shauna, would you like to have a go at that one? I think Shauna is much more expert on our region than I am. <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think you might have some interesting things to say on that one.
3: Maybe i just talk about Singapore. I think, I think that the legalisation of um, um, marriage in Taiwan will have um, very little impact on, um, on Singapore, where um, the sodomy law still exists. Um, and where same-sex marriage is a very very distant and near reality for for, um, LGBTs in Singapore. Distant in that um, activists first need to to sort of fight this um, gay law, right? Um, And then think about same-sex marriage at the same time as same-sex marriage um, arrives closer to Singapore, it is something that um, it is something that people have started talking about. So while it's still illegal to be gay in Singapore and, and that, and that uh, colonial law still exists the government has in some instances began talking about um, same-sex marriage right? um, and I think the government occupies a pretty ambivalent position in Singapore where on the one hand um, there is, there is a bit of rising conservatism in Singapore on the one hand, but at the same time, um, because Singapore sells itself as a global city and wants to signal its progressiveness and modernity, um, it finds itself having to engage with um, same-sex marriage as a reality in the city's course.
1: Thanks, Sean. I just wanted to get a perspective from you know, someone who, you know, somebody who... One of our authors is actually in the audience tonight. And and, and bouncing off what Shauna was saying, I think there is this sort of real values battle going on at the moment where countries do want to be modern. Take somewhere like the Philippines, which is the, you know, many see as the most westernized country in Asia because of its, you know, Catholic colonization, then US colonization. And it is the world's fifth Catholic country. It also has a significant Muslim minority, which is also moving towards the conservative right very, very strongly with a little bit of help from the World Muslim League from Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, a little bit like the US evangelists in the Muslim world. Um, And so there is this sort of battle for the moral high ground i think that's going on in asia even though if you go to downtown manila you can go to ermita and see all the gay bars you can see you know the asian sex tourism is 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 thriving in places like thailand and the philippines for gay 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 male tourism as well but there's a deep deep hypocrisy in these countries. Um, you can also see that in North Africa, you've got sort of sex tourism in Morocco. So there's this deep hypocrisy. We're going to have our anti-Western values, but we'll turn a blind eye to these other sorts of things that are going on. I'm you know, I'm a little pessimistic also about what's happening in Asia, particularly, I mean, everyone's quite shocked about the, the, the backtracking in Indonesia right now. And um, it's really, really hard for us to have a conversation about something like gay marriage, when you know the most basic rights you know, uh, people are, are, are still fearing for their lives.
0: If I may, uh, because I, of course I, 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 I know little about, uh, about Asian cases, except everything was, which was brought to the book, but uh, I guess that it's hard to make prediction uh, if I consider the European cases and what happened when European countries started to uh, grant same-sex uh, marriage, Um, we would have foreseen what happened next, which is that it it has become some sort of a a battle line, a front line for different forces uh, to to conflagrate. And that there was a spillover effect uh, in some countries, among some countries, where uh, actually, uh, uh, like definitely France, uh, in France, the, the fact that Belgium and Spain had legislated in favor of gay marriage was extremely important to uh, legislate also in that direction. But at the same case, I mentioned several uh, Central Eastern European countries where um, legislating against same-sex marriage uh, was uh, uh, the result also, uh, the counter-productive uh, result of this uh, spillover effect. So I guess that something like that might happen in Asia, if. Taiwan was the first to grant uh, grand same-sex marriage. And maybe that something will happen also, which is that Taiwan would not be the first. <laughs> and that there will be some surprise somewhere. One can always
1: dream.
2: Uh, thank you so much um, for the book that you produced, particularly the broad coverage. I'd like to ask a question about Africa, because I lived in Africa for many years, but I won't. I I was really intrigued by Maxime's description of the conservative forces in France splitting into two. Those who were vehemently against uh, marriage equality and those conservatives who actually supported it. And I'm really interested in our Australian, maybe Bronwyn could mention something about this as well. Could you go a little bit deeper about the conservative forces who support gay rights and lesbian rights and the thesis that is suggesting that um, marriage equality and the campaigns were an attempt to domesticate otherwise rebellious marginal groups, particularly lesbians or, or gay men who uh, if they were not tamed, you know the sense of being tamed. Um, rebellious types who needed taming could well be tamed if they were channeled into this conservative institution of of marriage. Could you talk a bit more about that?
1: Um, I, I something sprang into my mind as a, a great book um, called Sappho in the Holy Land. It's about um, Lesbians in Israel, basically, and most of them are in the peace movement, uh, anti-occupation movement. And um, one of them, Ereira er- er- Shadmi, wrote about how gay rights campaigns have gone from being subversive to adopting this sort of revolutionary, to adopting this sort of civil rights frame, which is quite normative. And in Israel, you know, we have this whole sort of pinkwashing that they talk about in Israel where, you know, it's easier to bring home your gay boyfriend or girlfriend than to bring home an Arab man, in, as if you're a woman, and to have a heterosexual relationship with an Arab man, yeah? So there's a lot of hypocrisy in Israel about gay rights. Um, and you know, the sort of race, race hierarchies between the, the Ashkenazi versus Middle Eastern versus Jews versus Arabs, yeah? So that sort of domestication and appropriation um, is also has a divide-and-conquer type of element to it, yeah? And, um, and, and we've still got two classes of citizens in this country and other countries, those who are married and those who are not. And there's differential treatment in all sorts of ways, depending on whether you're married or not, and there's a different symbolic value you have on whether you're married or not. Sometimes it can work against you. People who wanted to get married in Australia, I just kept saying, careful what you wish for. If you lose your job, your spouse's income is going to be means tested now and you might not get the doll. Now, that's actually an anti-married people law in Australia. Um, It doesn't work that way everywhere. In France, for example, it doesn't work that way. But in France, you get tax advantages if you're married. So those sorts of things, I think, are still... Splitting us into, as you're saying, I think it's a very good term you used, markets—the domesticated and the, and the, um, and the, and and the sort of the still marginalised, the people who don't gender conform, or the people who don't want to be married, or the people who are polyamorous, or the people who have other revolutionary agendas, like you know, what are we going to do about refugees, or you know, what are we going to do about some of the other terrible things that are happening to people, including gay people. Um, So, um, in terms of, uh, I haven't really addressed your question about the conservatives, Um, again, it sort of comes back to what I was saying before about how conservatives, some more small l liberal conservatives, find in marriage, the gay marriage issue, a really easy way to look good, and a really easy way to catch the undecided voters, or to catch the centrist voters, and what's worrying me, and it's particularly apparent in Europe, I mean, I'm I find the rest of the world pretty scary at the moment, you know, between Putin and Trump and, you know, a few other people. But what's really worrying me in Europe and certainly in Australia is that the centre and the centre-right and the neoliberal centre, very normative centre-right, is now becoming the alternative that we look to to save us from the extreme right. And I'm wondering where our revolutionary politics have gone. And I find... I, I just find it scary um, that we are... We are the battle for marriage is so intense in places like Australia and Ireland and France and all other places we know about, that it's, it's become the thing. It's become the thing we put our energy into, and all these other things are suddenly sort of falling by the wayside.
0: Actually, I, will, I will support that also. Um, if, if you take the situation of the HIV crisis and of uh, LGBT activism uh, under those circumstances, uh, and when it was about uh, um, taking uh, to the light uh, the situation of people that were really in the margin at the time. Uh, If I take the French context, for instance, you know, uh, moving to the light, this black continent of uh, homosexual sexuality, basically. And uh, um, it was like really about bodies, about sex, uh, about uh, margin, about prisoners, um, getting HIV in, uh, in, in, in jail and, and uh, so it was all about marginalized group and uh, making them visible in order to allow them to uh, to fight for their, for their rights and first for the right to leave. And we move to a, a fight which is uh, a str- political struggle which is, has been much institutionalized in many cases as those we cover in the book uh, that took place on the constitutional court level or parliamentary ground or party politics level, and which is all about uh, joining or getting in or being allowed to enter a conservative institution, uh, which is marriage, as it was framed in religious terms in many societies. So um, there was definitely a, a shift, and definitely this shift of focus and uh, uh, in, in terms of type of activism mobilized and, and so on, um, offer different political uh, opportunities for conservative voices and, and, and forces to, uh, to instrumentalize or co-opt uh, this type of claims because it's completely different uh, from uh, what has been the case for the HIV crisis I just mentioned. So I see different type of use, Uh, by conservative forces, Uh, there are some liberal-driven, like market-driven instrumentalization that leading, like in the UK, uh, a conservative prime minister to an easy electoral scoring at limited cost at the time, uh, by supporting uh, the the, uh, the, uh, uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, You have definitely uh, the temptation of co-optation and instrumentalization in the sense of um, domestication, as you mentioned. That's a good word, I think. Like, OK, uh, okay we have uh, gays and lesbians, so let them get married so that everything is under control and, uh, and, and, and a happy ending. Um, but this should be uh, uh, differentiated from the strategic framing that were used by act- LGBT activists themselves. Because when they have seen that in front of them they had conservative voice uh, forces, and those conservatives were kind of, you know, hesitating and uh, kind of um, less reluctant uh, that might uh, have been the case to grant marriage equality because it was about domestication, there were also those activists tempted to use this political opportunity. And they did use it, definitely. And, uh, and, uh, and, and in France, it was like pretty much a case, for instance, that uh, uh, there was this shift, okay, let's use a Republican framing, let's use like this narrative of continuity in our benefit you know, to, 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 be gai- to gain a new, new rights. But I think that somehow our book like shifting, uh, as, like changing lens from social movement literature to world institutions, actually is bringing to social movement literature new research questions, uh, new things to investigate, uh, like this co-optation, domestication, or instrumentalization, and what it means for, as you said, other claims which are still in the margins.
1: Just add another short comment to that. In the Anglo world, and particularly in the US, you know, we often, you sort of, when you're trying to write radical things and you get reviewer reports from the US, they want to take everything back to individual agency. So if you critique the institutionalization of anything, (laughs) from feminism to gay marriage to anything you want to institution, you want to talk about, um, it gets brought back, but what about the agency of the activists, what about people who want to get married? But that's not really the point of what we're trying to talk about. Of course, you know, I I perfectly understand. I have a PhD student who's getting married, you know, as soon as he finishes his PhD, his, his fiance says he won't marry him until he finishes his PhD. But, you know, it's like, of course, you know, people should have the right to do what they want. I don't really, you know, that's not for me to tell people what to do or not. But as soon as you start to critique an institution, it suddenly becomes about how states do and what markets do and what institutional actors of various sorts do. It suddenly gets pulled back to this individual social movement agency stuff, and we've had a lot of literature about that, as Maxime said, particularly coming out of the US and some out of Australia as well. You know, And in the early days of second wave feminism, you criticised marriage and housewifery and motherhood, and suddenly you were attacking all women who were married and stayed at home and didn't have a job and looked after the kids for free. And suddenly you were attacking them personally, which really wasn't the point. So it's actually quite hard to shift this conversation to look at the institutions because it's a little bit like uh, what we call in French a dialogue de sourd, a dialogue of the deaf. We're sort of talking of, or you're talking onto, you're sort of talking past each other. Whereas, you know, what, some people want to talk about this, but we want to talk about that. And one does not cancel out the other. There was a question up the back in the orange top.
2: Thank you. Uh, I'm just wondering, though, I mean, uh, do you think uh, same sex marriage is More into legal thing or more, or it's rather moral thing. Thank you.
1: Is it a legal thing or a moral thing? Well, it depends who you ask. Um, I think there is a fundamental moral argument for campaigners among campaigners for same-sex marriage about equality of treatment. And you can have that anywhere, you know, women in the front lines of the army, you know, whatever you think about the army, you can talk about a basic equality principle that, you know, what some people, some sections of the society are able to do, other sections of the society should be able to do within obviously reasonable limits. I mean, you know, um, um, there are some things that, you know, there are needs that some people have that other people might have, or biological functions that some people have that other people don't have. But putting those particular specifics aside, There is a fundamental moral argument for equality in a democratic world where human rights and the rule of law are supposed to operate and where separation of power and blah, 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 all the sorts of democratic tenets we're familiar with are supposed to operate. There is a fundamental moral argument in favor of same-sex marriage. However, if you're a conservative Christian, um, for you there may be a fundamental moral argument against same-sex marriage because it's against nature and it's against the law of God. It depends where you're speaking from, yeah? Um, Where I'm speaking from, there's a fundamental equality argument, and that's a fundamental moral argument. But beyond that fundamental moral argument, just because there's an existing structure doesn't mean we have to like the existing structure. Just because we think there should be equality with the existing structures, yes, of course there should be more women on corporate boards. Doesn't mean I have to like corporate boards, yes? So we have sort of, you know reformist baby steps we take towards a greater good. Yeah? Um, so that's a you know, fundamental equality argument, but that fundamental equality argument doesn't then is, get us very far. When you make the difference between a moral argument and a legal argument, well, There are traditions of of moral positions that have been illegal. Um, Civil disobedience, there's a a long tradition of civil disobedience. Um, During the Algerian war, uh, there was a network um, in France that gave people money and false passports, activists from the Algerian National Liberation Front. And they were tried for treason. And there was a manifesto, put out a very famous manifesto called the Manifesto of the 121 that actually upheld the Jacobin Republican principles, um, the actual Declaration of the Rights of Man that sort of didn't become constitutional, but it's just the most radical declaration that says it is a duty of citizens to rise up against an unjust power. So that also is a moral argument. So you can sometimes the moral argument and the legal argument will go together, but sometimes they will not. There is a moral good that is, goes beyond the legal argument.
0: Yeah, I guess that the the legal and moral argument often, like, uh, it's hard to distinguish it from each other because uh, uh, legal framing, legal orders, uh, contain very much uh, uh, moral values also. So, uh, yes, although they they sometimes have different... uh, They they, they do not coincide in many cases. uh, Legislation, legal orders encapsulate... Some sort of moral values, uh, so it's for me difficult to 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 distinguish it from each other. If I take the the French example again, um, we had three types of argument: legal, constitutional one in terms of equality before the law, and this narrative of continuity I didn't mention. Moral, moral ones which were brought especially by uh, by uh, conservative voices. Uh, uh, um, and uh, anthropological one which were brought forward by both sides. Uh, what, what do I mean by anthropological one? Because it's just to, 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 to make an addendum to the distinction you, you made between legal and moral arguments. Anthropological arguments uh, uh, supported the fact that fam- the idea that families anthropologically are playing a function which is reproduction of the human race and that therefore uh, uh, families are per se heterosexual so as to allow this reproduction. And this was a very powerful powerful, uh, argument that was brooked by conservative forces and that actually was much more present uh, in the debate uh, than moral one, though sometimes you have also a different type. Of framing that came up beyond legal and moral ones. Yeah.
4: That's, that's funny that you are talking about that because I, I, I was just, I had in mind uh, further conservatism which might happen because there is marriage, so there is the right to have children, so there is a question which are going, like surrogacy, for example. If you imagine that. Uh, there'll be a fight for uh, okay we married now we should have uh, our children, preferably our flesh and blood so how can we do that in the case of two men oh well, let's fight for for, for surrogacy what does it say uh, to the way a woman body is seen so uh, I feel that there is a lot of contradiction which uh, uh, are going to keep being brought in terms of cons- cons- conservatism. So even if it's not directly uh, connected to marriage equality, I think it's something which has been lurking very much uh, in, the, in the background.
0: Actually, in, many, in, in some contexts, this has been uh this has been the, 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 the framing by uh, most of conservative voices to, uh, to put forward this uh, potential connection uh, of uh, um, same-sex marriage with, um, with uh, um, medically assisted procreation and surrogacy. Uh, and in the French case, this has been very much the case, and uh, this was one of the first uh, arguments that was brought from this uh, anthropological perspective, uh, telling that authorizing, uh, granting a same-sex marriage uh, equaled, uh, uh, equals uh, granting, uh, making possible in, in the nearest future uh, uh, surrogacy. And, uh, and it has been uh, one of the challenges of the supporters uh, of um, of the advocates of uh, same sex marriage uh, to uh, try to uh, break uh, this conception and this uh, logical link that was established and sometimes it was not easy, even in their own uh, uh, political camp uh, to, uh, to make this, um, to bring this clarification actually.
1: We often talk in human rights um, for about conflicts of rights and if you look at the UN treaties you sometimes have these conflicts of rights. We have the rights of the child but then we have the rights of the parents to decide what religion their child should be. We have the rights of women and girls but then we have the rights of the parents to do other things. Um, It's interesting to me that these conflicts of rights generally occur where women's rights are at play. And the surrogacy debate is a really, really tough one because, yes, conservatives use it, but so do advocates of gay marriage and gay families. There are gay dads' movements around that advocate surrogacy, and surrogacy, we know, is a legal and political minefield. We all remember the Baby Gammy case here not so long ago. And just because gay men are campaigning for it doesn't make it worse than heterosexuals campaigning for it. I recently, oh, a couple of years ago, I was sitting with a colleague we were chatting about something rather and she said, yes, I'm about to take some leave because I'm having a child by surrogacy and I almost fell off my chair because when you're in that context, it's very difficult to start into a political argument about surrogacy. Um, So, you know, it's not a gay thing necessarily, the heterosexuals are doing this too, and there are all sorts of transnational political, legal, economic issues that we all know about. We know about the distinction that gets made between altruistic and commercial surrogacy and so on and on and on. Um, when you, when I, my next book gets published there will be a chapter on surrogacy, um, but what is really problematic about surrogacy more generally and particularly in the context of gay parenting is framing surrogacy as someone's right to rent a womb or to even get a womb for free and that woman once again becomes reduced to the status of a womb rather than a person. So it's about hiring out our bodies, bits of ourselves in ways that don't happen in other jobs. I don't think that political dilemma is going to be resolved anytime soon, particularly when we live in a world where women just don't count as fully human in the way that men count as fully human. And, you know, some people may go, oh, she's going too far. But you actually look at some of the stats, including in this country, there was a recent report out on violence against women. So things aren't that great. And when we look at the race, class and transnational dimensions of surrogacy, it becomes a really, really big problem. And it again gets back to what Maxime was saying about this anthropological framing of the family. It's like, oh, it has to be your own DNA. And you know, I've, there's been some IVF, I have similar, similar issues, but you know, it's not quite, you're not invading someone's body in quite the same way. Someone else's body is you know, not part of your couple. Um, this idea that the people you raise have to share your DNA, yes? Is very strong, very sort of ingrained in our idea of family and procreation and continuing of the human species. And and when you think of, you know, there are... What's wrong with adoption, you know? The series Modern Family, if there's one thing I like about the series, there's two gay dads that adopt a kid. They don't have a kid by surrogacy, they adopt a kid. And I'm thinking, great, well, let's put that message out there. Yeah? Um, because for lesbians too, what is wrong with adopting kids? There are kids that need to be adopted. Why does it always have to be about our sperm and our DNA and our, our progeny and we just use women's bodies however we wish to get that goal? I have real personal problems with that. And I think it's a, a big political issue that's going to be coming to the fore and we're going to have to have the debate. If
0: and that's your next book, if I well understood, if uh, there is a political, if there is a political economy of same-sex marriage, there is, like surrogacy, is a lot about the political economy. Over
3: here. Yes,
1: got um, I just wanted to ask, just coming back to the question of or the, the comment about conservatism of marriage as an institution. Did you um, distinguish the um, uh, civil partnership model versus marriage model uh, as in, in, in your treatment in the book? And what, if so, um, do you think the differences are? There are very clear legal differences and economic differences. If you look at civil partnerships versus marriage, Well, in Germany, one of Merkel's arguments against same-sex marriage was in Germany was, well, civil partners had basically the same rights. And in Germany, that was pretty close to being true. However, it was not true in France. It was not true in the UK. um, And it's not been true in a lot of other places. There are actually tax fiscal and economic advantages and social status and advantages in terms of rights to children that you get in marriage that you don't get in civil partnerships. And that's the case fairly consistently. Yeah. Um, it's not something we deal with at length in the book, although we, uh, we do talk a little bit in a couple of chapters about legal incrementalism, where civil partnerships, you get civil partnerships first, and then that's sort of a step on the pathway to getting gay marriage. And that sort of legal incrementalism has certainly been the case in countries like the UK, France, and elsewhere. Um, Denmark also, um, which was the first country to recognise civil partnerships, but not same-sex marriage. So... Um, although it's not a main focus of the book, it does get considered within that
0: frame. Yeah. But actually, I- even if uh, this incrementalism work in a few countries, uh, we, we see in the book that it has not been much a case in other, uh, that uh, actually granting uh, some sort of registered partnership in many cases was uh, a period like endpoint of this, uh, of, this, uh, of this process and that it has been used Uh, as an argument for not granting sex-sex marriage. But look, you have this registered partnership, is that much enough? And, uh, and, uh, and uh, if you want same-sex marriage, it means that you imported your uh, claims from uh, other countries and that you are actually undermining uh, the foundation of the family and that is no longer a question of rights but a question, um, a question of uh, moral value that you want to import or like you want to advertise uh, um, a non-heterosexual way of, li- of living and, uh, and, and sexualities. So uh, 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 this registered partnership thing has been uh, something like uh, rather um, tricky in in uh, in many contexts. Just an example: um, in Hungary, Hungary was the first country to grant se- uh, registered partnership in uh, Central in post-communist Europe under uh, a socialist government, but with the abstention of uh, the party of uh, Viktor Orbán, who is the one who made abstention at the time, and who uh, uh, act- actually constitutionalized uh, heterosexual marriage uh, a few years after. So you see that uh, there was a complete shift in terms of uh, political alignment around those two issues.
1: As to whether it's better or not, um, it has civil partnerships in the past, and gay marriage now are actually really important legally for transnational couples. Um, in in France, coming back to France. It's a country we both know a lot about, so we can't help going back there. Um, but uh, the PACS, the Civil Solidarity PAC, which I think is a really interesting contract, because you can actually have a PACS with somebody who is not your love interest. You can have a PACS with anybody who's not biologically related to you, yes, in, in your immediate family. And it's sort of interesting to, you know, it's a new way of conceptualizing relationships. And some people have used it that way. Most haven't. But you can technically do that. Um, uh, There's an immigration organization called Ardis in France which works on um, transnational couples immigration as well as asylum. And for the transnational couples, if you have a PACS, it was sort of like almost the basic condition, once that law was established, that civil partnership law was established, if you weren't in such a partnership you had much less chance of migrating to France to be with your lover. Now it's going to be about marriage. You have to get married to be there. In Australia, um, at the beginning when um, compassionate grounds legislation was used, then it became interdependency legislation. Now it's going to be marriage. You had to have all this documentation about how you had bank accounts in common and you lived together and all this sort of stuff. So it's extremely normative. So in terms of transnational couples, there's a real danger in these things. Whether civil partnerships versus marriage are better or worse, I think... You know, if people, if, you know, lots of lesbians, you know, some of the evidence shows that gay men will tend to get married to resource pool, whereas lesbians will tend to get married to have kids. There seems to be that sort of demographic, you know, thing. So marriage certainly gives people legal protections when they have children, and that's also the case in Australia.
0: As far as I know, there are very little countries like, uh make a legal obligation to recognize uh, registered partnerships, civil partnerships, uh, contracted in another country, in a third country. Uh, but there are, of course, many uh, who uh, make compulsory to recognize uh, legally um, uh, marriage contracted in a, in a third country. And the latest case being in Russia, uh, where in Russia, yes, where uh, you had... Uh, Very recently, um, a very compliant and uh, uh, um, legally observant uh, civil servant who innocently uh, recognized legally same-sex marriage contracted by a Russian citizen with a Danish citizen. Uh, and, uh, in Denmark, and of course there was an outburst of, uh, uh, from uh, the Kremlin again, against uh, the decision of this, uh, of this civil servant who simply applied the Russian law in that case, and uh, quickly, swiftly, the law was changed. If there's one
1: very, very quick question or comment to which we must provide very, very quick answers, speak now or forever hold your peace, as they say in wedding ceremonies, Otherwise, we're going to call it an evening. I think we're calling it an evening. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you much,
0: Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.